You say tomato, he says tomato. You say the Bible is 66 books that are all divinely inspired by God. He says the Bible is 75 books that are divinely inspired by God. And she's over there with the tinfoil hat saying that it's all made up and it's all a grand conspiracy made by a bunch of shady people with an agenda. So can we know who's right in this situation? Well, fortunately for us, history is not a mystery. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. As always, I want to thank my supporters on Patreon who support this ministry every month, making sure that the blog and podcast can keep on going. I want to give a special thanks in this episode to Gary and Stacy, who have been supporting me since July, as well as Jennifer, who has been supporting since June. So thank you all for your continued support. Depending on how you grew up, it's easy to imagine that maybe everyone's always agreed on what books belong in the Bible. If you've only been exposed to Protestant Christianity, you may not even realize that there are people who think that there are extra books that are also divinely inspired that not only should be in the Bible, but that people are using today in addition to the 66 books that we're familiar with. And obviously, if you've paid attention at all in the last decade or so, it's probably much less surprising to know that there's a lot of people who completely question the legitimacy of any of the books in God's Word, claiming that they are either just good opinions by people or that they are a product of powerful people that basically designed and crafted and produced the Bible in order to control the masses. Now, the goal of this episode is not necessarily to dig into the nitty-gritty history of how we got the Bible, but instead to give more of a high overview of how we got the 66 books that we use today and why Christians throughout the centuries have rejected any other books. Now, if you're wondering about the claim for whether the Bible is divinely inspired, we will touch on that a little bit, but I would encourage you to go all the way back in my catalog to some of the earlier episodes where I dig into what the Bible is in terms of a divinely inspired book, and you'll find a much more thorough discussion there. But for this episode, we are mostly just talking about how these particular books came together. Now, perhaps the most important thing to understand is that the books of the Bible weren't chosen at random, and they definitely weren't chosen with any kind of specific agenda in mind. Uh, Some would claim that a specific group of people came together in some dimly lit room and they conspired together to create the Bible that they wanted to send out to the masses so that they could remain in power and they could control simple-minded folk. But today, we are now elevated beyond that, and we don't need some kind of book of fairy tales to tell us what to do. Uh, You know, if you remember things like the Da Vinci Code craze from years ago or just these other random thoughts and theories that pop up that ultimately questions the legitimacy of the Bible or questions if some things were added to the Bible or taken out of the Bible because they didn't fit an agenda, it's really no surprise that it is a, a popular thing among people to just question the Bible in any way possible. Now, all of that can be really interesting to people, but unfortunately, the actual history of how we got our Bible really wouldn't make for a very good Hollywood thriller. 
Instead, we can look back through history and what we ultimately see is a good and perfect God guiding and protecting his word through his people so that we can today see the truth that God has revealed to us. Now with that is just a quick reminder, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. And so when we're talking about the Bible, we're not talking about this well-collected piece of art. We are talking about our belief that these 66 books and only these 66 books were divinely inspired and preserved for the generations that the Bible that we have today contains all we need, is not lacking in anything that was taken out on purpose, and it is not needing to be added to by other sources. And with that, we can have confidence in our Bible and what's contained within it. And we can hold it up and use it as something that's not just the thoughts of flawed human beings, but truly the Word of God. So with that in mind, let's try to briefly look at why we trust the specific books that we have of the Old and New Testament. The first thing to look at is how we got the 39 books of the Old Testament that we see today. Now, this one is actually incredibly simple. Our books of the Old Testament are really just what Jews used throughout history, which for them was called the Hebrew Bible. Because to them, there wasn't an Old Testament and Covenant and a New Testament and Covenant. They simply have their Bible, their Word of God that they recognize. And so we would call that the Hebrew Bible. Now, the holy words of God that they'd been protecting and preserving all throughout the generations were clearly what God wanted Israel to have because they were his words to them. And so with that... We see that the writings of Moses, the writings of the prophets, those things were preserved and passed on through the generations so that the Hebrews, the Old Testament Jews, would always have God's word to them, that they could study it and know it and understand it. And so because they were so meticulous and they were so careful and God was so sovereign in preserving that Hebrew Bible, that Old Testament that we now know today, when it comes to what we use for the Old Testament, we simply go with what the Jews did. We only use what God's chosen people have been using since the days before Jesus Christ came to earth. So that is a pretty cut and dry thing in terms of how those books in the Bible were selected or trusted and recognized as authoritative and divinely inspired. But if you look at the Hebrew Bible, you may actually notice some strange differences that may make us wonder, oh, maybe this isn't the same thing. Maybe we have done something different. Because although we have the same words as the Hebrew Bible, we've actually arranged them differently today. So let me just give you some uh, comparisons between the Hebrew Bible and what we now use in our Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible only has 24 books in it whereas our Old Testament has 39 books. Again, that can make us panic a little bit. But the Hebrew Bible has books called, for example, Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. Three books. Meanwhile, we have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Samuel, which compose six books. 
they are the exact same writings, but in our Old Testaments, we have split them into two different books. Likewise, we have our 12 minor prophets, people like Jonah, Habakkuk, Micah, uh, and they, in the Hebrew Bible, they are all combined into a single book called the Book of Twelve. So instead of 12 separate books, they have a singular book called the Book of Twelve. And then from there, although our first books of the Bible are in the exact same order, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we both share the arrangement of the books of the law. The rest of their books are grouped together in different categories. And so they use former prophets, latter prophets, and writings, whereas we group ours into history, poetry, and prophecy. So again, all the words are the same, but the way that we collect them and then the way that we order them is going to be different. So if you grew up in like a children's church setting and you did Bible drills where you have to hold your Bible above your head and the teacher gives a reference and you have to speed flip to it and stand up and start reading it in order to get sucker or a sticker or something, uh, don't use the Hebrew Bible because you will be so very lost if you're trying to find anything in there. But the thing that we want to ask though is why the difference? Why not just have 24 books in our Bible? Well, Ultimately, it comes down to tradition and familiarity of the early church fathers. So before Christ came to earth, the Jews had been scattered around in the centuries since the Old Testament had been completed. Um, and when I say scattered around, I mean they had been basically sent as refugees. They'd been exiled to different parts of the world. Uh, at that time, most of the world didn't speak Hebrew. They did not speak the language that the Old Testament was written in. And so when you're growing up in a culture like that, you learn to speak the local language. And for a lot of people, that local language was Greek. Now, if you're a Jew in that day, you would be like many people around you in that you wanted to read and understand your sacred book, but you just couldn't read it in Hebrew. It would be like us today saying, I really want to read the Bible in its original language and going and finding a Greek New Testament, opening it up and saying, uh, because if you've not been trained to read it, you're just not going to be able to read it. That's just the simple reality of it. That's why today we read the Bible in our native familiar language and the Jews back in the early centuries before Christ were exactly the same. They knew Greek, and so if they wanted to read their Hebrew Bible, they wanted to read it in a language they understood. And so slowly over time, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek to help people read it. Now, as everything seems to work, there was one particular translation that kind of got most popular or most used um, known as the Septuagint or maybe the Greek LXX, depending on which term you've heard, but they're the same thing. Uh, and so the Septuagint was just simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament that spread in popularity and became the Bible, essentially, that people used. And we even see in the New Testament, if you look at the way that writers and even Christ quoted from the Old Testament, they quoted it in the language and in the style of the Septuagint, showing that even people in in the Bible that we are familiar with in the New Testament, even they used 
this Greek translation called the Septuagint. And then from there, while not all Greek translations ordered the Old Testament differently, the Septuagint did, in fact, arrange the Old Testament into 39 books in the order that we are familiar with today. And so, as Christianity began to spread, and especially as it spread within non-Jewish communities who, if they wanted a Bible, the Septuagint was the most likely thing for them to get, the Greek translation then became more necessary for those wanting to learn more about God. And then over time, the Septuagint became familiar, and thus as it got translated and as it spread, or, or you know, the Septuagint was kind of passed around the world, people just became much more familiar with the Greek arrangement of the Old Testament compared to the original Hebrew arrangement that had been done so long prior. So as we're looking at, you know, how did all this happen? What we want to understand with history is that there's really nothing sinister or suspicious about how the Old Testament came to be. The order of the books was never inspired by God. Even the names of the books were not inspired by God. So if we call it Kings versus first or second Kings, that is not what's important. What's important is what is written and preserved within those books. Because the content is absolutely divinely inspired by God. Whenever, you know, Paul is talking about how all scripture is inspired by God, primarily what he was looking at then was actually the Old Testament because in the time of Paul's writings, the New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. It was still being divinely inspired by God. And so when they are talking about the Bible or the scriptures, they are primarily keeping in focus, usually this Greek Septuagint, this Old Testament Hebrew Bible being divinely inspired by God. And then with that, if we really think about it, we realize that it's amazing that we today can read the exact same prophecies that Jesus Christ did when he stood up in the temple, or we can read the same Jewish history that Paul was so familiar with, or when we read the book of Hebrews and it is so drenched in Jewish tradition and understanding, we can understand what the original writers thought by going back to the Old Testament and understanding how their worldview was formed to understand what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. And so the Old Testament is immensely valuable. It's not just this outdated thing because it doesn't have the easy to read stuff or the life-changing verses that we can hang up on our walls, but we can be confident that the Old Testament is useful and necessary to our lives, maybe not necessarily the practice of our lives because we are now under a new covenant, but we can be confident that the Old Testament that we have today is the same writings that God has preserved throughout the centuries that he used to not only help the Jews understand who they were in their relationship with God the Father, but even this is the Old Testament that people like Paul and the other apostles used to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ using only this Hebrew Bible. Now, if you are uh, maybe curious about this whole Septuagint thing, there's a great two-part series that I'll link down below on the Logos blog, um, and it just gets a bit more nitty-gritty into what it is and kind of how it came to be. Now, how did we get the 27 books of the New Testament? Well, the selection of New Testament books isn't nearly as neat and tidy as the Old Testament. 
There was, at the time, a lot of confusion and even debate in the early church about what was considered inspired by God, and what was just totally made up, and what was simply written by a Christian, and may have even been true, but wasn't divinely inspired. It was not God-breathed. However, that can sound scary to us, but despite all the debate from people who criticize the Bible today, the uncertainty of the New Testament gets cleared up when we understand why Christians debated certain books and how we ultimately concluded with the 27 that we have today. Now, when I talk about what was divinely inspired versus what was made up or what was just a human opinion that may have been true, but wasn't divinely inspired, we want to consider 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, saying, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the greatest requirement for something to be considered inspired by God is the author. It doesn't matter if something is true, because we could have thousands of writings in the shoved in our New Testament because someone wrote down, God is good, or Jesus saves, right? Just because someone wrote something that is true or sounds good does not mean that it just goes alongside other divinely inspired things. And so, but with this, the author does matter. We know that all those who truly repent of their sins and ask Christ to save them are given the exact same Holy Spirit. We also know that we can only speak and understand truth about God because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. However, that doesn't mean anything we say or any other Christian says should be considered inspired by God in the same way because we can mix our false understanding with the truth of God and we lack the authority necessary for something to be considered divinely inspired or for God to use something to be divinely inspired. So instead of just saying, well, did a Christian say it and does it sound true? Instead, everything in the New Testament has something called apostolic authority. Apostolic having the root word of apostle, so the authority of an apostle. Uh, so they are the words written by an apostle of Jesus Christ or an eyewitness to Christ who writes under an apostle. Uh, and I make that delineation because depending on who you talk to, um, men like Mark, James, the brother of Christ, Jude, who may have also been the brother of Christ, and whoever you tag as the writer of Hebrews, we cannot confirm and guarantee that they were of the original apostles, but they were definitely witnesses to Jesus Christ and sent by him in one way or another. Now, these writers carry the power and authority that allow them to speak clear truth that contained no error or false understanding. It's not just that what they said sounded good or was hard to argue against, but that because God gave them these words, God inspired the writings that in their original writing, so when they were written in the original Greek for the New Testament, they were completely without error because they were given to these writers by God, not word-for-word -word copies, right? Because if you read the New Testament, each writer has their own personality to how they write things and how they say things. You know, Mark is very to the point. Luke is very precise and methodical. Paul is very logical, but also very, very easily excited and takes rabbit trails and has ridiculously long run-on sentences at some points. 
But with all of those, despite the human element, these these writers were inspired and the writings were protected and preserved by God to to write out what God wanted them to say. And so, as Christians in the early centuries were looking at all these collected writings from Christians throughout history, one thing they would look at is, does this writing carry with it clear apostolic authority? Was it written by an apostle? Can we confirm that it was written by an apostle? Or can we confirm that it was written by someone who was under an apostle, who was discipled by an apostle and was a witness of Jesus Christ? Now, that's not to say that all Christians came to an immediate agreement on which books were inspired. After all, if we are being fair to how history works, we know that they didn't have our benefit of being able to trace the various New Testament writings throughout history to see whether they were truly written by apostles or whether they were just created centuries later and somehow found their ways into the hands of Christians who assumed that they were real. Uh, With that, I think of things like the Gospel of Thomas and things like that that have a name attached to them, but with the technology they had available to them, they had to be very, very cautious on discovering whether or not that had a divine inspiration to it. And so with that, when we're having this conversation, people like to appeal to the fact that, well, the early church writers quoted these books that we don't use in our Bibles today. And that's true. Early church fathers who today we love and respect were known to use various writings that we now know were not written by the apostles. So when Christians finally came together to discuss and debate which books were inspired by God and thus had authority in our lives, they also had to do the hard work to trace the history of every single book to make sure that it was truly from an apostle or someone with apostolic authority. Now, in addition to a book needing to claim some kind of authorship by an apostle, the 27 books in our New Testament are those that were also clearly written in the first century. So within the lifespan of Jesus or within the lifespan of the apostles who lived after him. So why does this matter? Well, as we'll discuss in the next part of the discussion about the other books that we don't include in our Bible, There are many New Testament writings that claim to be from an apostle, yet it's clear they weren't written when that apostle was alive. For example, like I said, the Gospel of Thomas wasn't actually even discovered until 1945, and historians are still debating whether it could have possibly been written while Thomas was indeed alive. So, despite claiming the correct author, there's little reason to believe it was actually written by Thomas himself. Now, I want to be very clear here on the assumptions that we make on that. That does not mean that someone wrote the book of Thomas to necessarily be manipulative and add to the Bible. Instead, there was a practice in the day where someone would write something and attach their teacher's name to it. So it is possible, there is a possibility that things like the Gospel of Thomas were not written by Thomas or overseen or approved or even seen by Thomas, but instead, someone who was from a line of disciples who followed Thomas may have kind of name-dropped, in a way, if you will, or added authority to it by saying, I am a disciple of Thomas. I follow the line of teachings that came from Thomas and what he taught his disciples as they followed Christ. And so they would just attach the name of Thomas, almost like representing the school of Thomas the Apostle. 
but all that to say, that's why, though, it's so critical that the writings that we have were all from the first century so that we can guarantee that even if it claims apostolic authority, if it was clearly written centuries after the fact, we can say, okay, there's something more at work here that leads us to realize this is not truly divinely inspired. Now, another test that we need to apply or that the early church fathers applied to New Testament writings is in a way led by what we read in Numbers 23:19. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? So a bit of a final test that the books of the New Testament had to pass is what we today would call the law of non-contradiction. Now, this is the basic understanding that God cannot contradict himself. That is the theological implication of the law of non-contradiction. The basics of it is that something cannot be true and not true. So we cannot say that a table is both here and not here. We cannot say that Jesus Christ is both the only way to heaven and one of many ways to heaven. We cannot say that all religions are true while Christianity makes the claims of being the only true way to God. So that's the law of non-contradiction in a, in a philosophical sense, but theologically or biblically speaking, we know that if God has divinely inspired something through his Holy Spirit, that it cannot contradict something else that God through his Holy Spirit has inspired elsewhere. God is not going to say two different things. He's not going to report two different events that completely contradict each other once we understand how to interpret them correctly. Um, and God is not going to say yes to one thing and no to the same thing, right? So we know that if it is God who is inspiring these things and not just human beings doing their best, that whatever is divinely inspired by God must be in perfect alignment with other things divinely inspired by God. Now, as an interesting note to that, um, because of what we would call the law of non-contradiction, the book of James was very fiercely debated and almost didn't make it into the Bible or, or was almost not recognized as divinely inspired. Uh, at first glance, James does seem to teach that we are saved by our works and faith, which is a clear contradiction of what God teaches everywhere else in the Bible. Now, even our man Martin Luther was critical of its emphasis on works and lack of mentioning anything about Christ after the first few words. So again, when we are reading the book of James, and I've, you know, I talk to a lot of people who when they're first starting their Bible readings or they're really digging into James and they're wrestling with this seeming contradiction, you know, why is there so much emphasis on works when, you know, in Ephesians it talks about not works. You know, in Romans, it's about not our works. You know, so what is going on with James here that seems to be emphasizing works? And that is why there was so much debate about that book. But that is that same kind of diligence that was done when people were trying to recognize what truly is divinely inspired by God. Now, to help people better understand situations like this where, you know, maybe something didn't contradict the word of God, but do we know that it was always recognized as divinely inspired? Was it used as the true word of God? A, another thing that they would kind of add to this um, in their discussion about the New Testament books is what the early church fathers used in their own writings. 
Um, it's been said, I don't know how true this is or if this is just one of our Christian traditions, but it's been said that if every single Bible in existence were destroyed, we could actually rebuild it by reading what words the early church quoted in the first few centuries. So in other words, we can look at what was written by those who the apostles taught. So a disciple of Mark, a disciple of John, a disciple of Paul. We can look at their writings, the things that they quoted, the things that they recognized as authoritative and divinely inspired to help us better understand what is and is not authoritative or what even was in existence and used at that time. Now, it being quoted does not necessarily prove that a book is inspired, as we'll talk about with things like the Book of Enoch, but it is another piece of a multitude of evidences that gives us confidence in the 27 books that we use today. Now, that is a lot of information about the different ways that people would investigate and hold up the Bible or pieces of the Bible to say, does this truly match inspiration? Is this divinely inspired by God? Or is this what Peter's talking about? Is this actually a, a writing of men's opinions that just sound good? Now, we want to be very careful that we don't picture a group of, you know, stodgy old guys with just a whole bunch of books laid out on a table around them and people are casting votes saying, I think this one's inspired and whatever books had the most votes were shoved into the Bible because the books of the Bible were not chosen. That's what I was kind of joking about earlier about this idea that there's this grand conspiracy and people were manipulating and they were crafting a Bible. No one chose a book to be in the Bible or not be in the Bible. Instead, what they did is they sat back and said, what can we recognize? What is clearly inspired by God? What has always been assumed to be divinely inspired? And that's a common theme that runs through every decisions that Christians made in the early centuries about whether a book was truly inspired. Is this book recognized for its authority and inspiration that it already possesses? So Christians just didn't get together centuries ago and cut things they that didn't agree with their agendas or were considered by many to be inspired, but just not enough. Instead, the books included in our Bible have clear marks of inspiration and authority and really nothing more. Those that were rejected, even if they were interesting or informative, didn't have any more authority than a sermon or a book written by another Christian. They were valuable and maybe even true, but they were not inspired. This was not a case of some books barely missed a mark. If a book is in our New Testament today, that's because it is overwhelmingly clear that it belongs there. It's overwhelmingly obvious that history and the early church fathers and God himself have confirmed that these are divinely inspired works based on their history, based on their authorship. They were not chosen, they were recognized. They were not picked out from amongst many viable options. Instead, it was like an art professional going through a gallery and saying what is clearly a Van Gogh piece and what is a Xerox. What is truly inspired was truly inspired, and that is what they were doing, is just recognizing what was what. Now, again, that was just a high overview, but I hope that it was also a valuable one to help us better 
consider what our Bibles are to help us be comfortable with tackling some difficult decisions because we know that, you know, we aren't like the Mormons where our Bible was allegedly handed to a prophet by angels written on gold tablets and, you know, God divinely said, this is my word. You know, there is some difficulty. There is some human element in why we have the Bible that we have today, but understanding the the many variables and the considerations and the care and caution that was taken in recognizing these 27 books, we also realize that we don't need to fear those who cast doubts on the Bible. When we understand the care and study involved in determining what books were clearly given to us by God, we can rest in confidence that what we have is what God wants us to have. We don't need to have anxiety that we don't have enough. We don't have to fear that it's, you know, a a book is wrong. We can trust that the words within, even though those particular words can be hard to understand and even harder to follow, if we're very honest, we can trust that they are meant to be our primary source of truth. We know that the Bible is meant to guide our lives and everything within those 66 books that we have in front of us or on our phone has equal authority when we properly understand what's being said, how to interpret it, and how to apply it to our lives, and seeing how, from Genesis to Revelation, how all of this works together because God has divinely inspired it to tell one steady message of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin through redemptive history until his full victory in the end. So we see that about the 66 books we do use, but what about those books in the Catholic Bible? Or what about those other books that people thought might belong in the Bible? Well, we will be sure to tackle that next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.